0: And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help, your, help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're discussing American Graffiti, the 1973 classic film by uh, none other than George Lucas. Uh, I would guarantee most people in America would not know that George Lucas um, did something other than Star Wars. Um, I did. Yeah, I did too, because I've seen this one before. So, uh, just some uh, quick background on the movie. On the last day of summer vacation in 1962, friends, Kurt, played by Richard Dreyfuss, Steve, played by Ronnie Howard, as he was going at that time, now known as Ron, uh, Terry, played by Charles Martin Smith, and John, uh, played by Paul Lamott, cruise the streets of small-town California where a mysterious disc jockey, Wolfman Jack, spins classic rock and roll tunes, It's the last night before their grown-up lives begin, and Steve's high school sweetheart, a hot-to-trot blonde, a bratty adolescent, and a disappearing angel in a Thunderbird provide all the excitement they can handle. So what is your relationship to this movie?
1: I watched it with my dad in about 1978 or 9, right after we first got HBO. And this is about the time, well, my dad would have been in high school in 57, 58. So it wasn't far off from his era. And so it was basically me sitting watching a film trying to figure out what's going on and him reminiscing and pointing to cars and going, oh, that's a 1958 Thunderbird. And that... Ah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, that is a lot more analysis than I thought I'd get from your dad.
1: Yes, my dad actually did talk. Oh. As he got older, he got more quiet.
0: Oh, if only, you know, everybody's parents did that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so uh, my relationship to this film, um, I saw Star Wars much before this. Uh, I mean, we'll get to the Star Wars stuff well before uh, or well into the future of this because I don't want to, you know, waste that bullet on um, just a regular episode. But um, so, like, George Lucas has a certain um, standing within, like, the Hollywood pantheon due to creating one of the largest film franchises ever. Um, And, you know, so it, it does have... Some significance from that background, but I think you tried to show me this movie. Boy, I must have been like thirteen, and yeah. I I remembered some things about this movie, like uh, you know a few of the pieces. It I did not remember that Richard Dreyfus was in it at all. Pretty much because I'm sure the first time I watched it, I had no clue who the fuck Richard Dreyfus was. Um. <laughs> I mean, I barely probably knew who Ronnie Howard was at this point. Uh, Just I didn't do the background on this, but was he in Happy Days before or after this? After. So you have to
1: understand that Ron Howard, uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Rob Reiner all went to Hollywood High and they were all in the same class and they were all friends
0: like I, I do want to make note that um, Richard Dreyfus goes from being like for the better part of a decade um, on a bunch of different TV shows and TV series as like a guest star in these small um, roles here and there to basically doing this movie and um, being in the Dillinger movie in 73 uh, to translating I mean this is probably one of the best decades, decades. Yeah, well, well, I'm not I'm even doing that. Two years later, later, he's in Jaws, and then he's in Close Encounters right after that. Yeah, so,
1: and then he got nailed for um, smor- snorting about five uh, pounds of cocaine up his nose and spending okay. a lot of time in rehab and then trying to resurrect his career because he became the narrator for a Rob Reiner film called Stand By Me. And that was his first film after being out of pictures and out of acting for about five years.
0: So, but, like, that is pre-Lynn Bias, and, you know, even to a certain extent, uh, he did he get caught before or after Belushi died? Uh, after. Well, okay, so then maybe it carries a little bit more significance, but still. So, um... What is your um or what is this movie about in 15 words or less? Um coming of age and having to learn about yourself. Yeah, I mine's pretty similar. Four teenage bo- or 14 boys discover themselves at the peak between adolescence and adulthood. You Every know, and
1: them has a crisis or a situation that they have to face that's un- unique or different than what they have originally planned or thought. And so as a result, they've had to come to terms with that.
0: Right. They are having a crisis of confidence. I do want to say, though, that um, even though they're supposed to be four different um, storylines, I do think um, that uh, Richard Dreyfus's and Ronnie Howard's are. Um, playing opposition to each other to a certain degree. And then Terry and John are playing playing opposites to each other of them, like just in who their personalities were and the challenge that they're facing in this particular movie. So, uh, again, more for context and background... Like, Kurt and Steve are supposed to be the ones that are leaving to go to college. Mm -hmm. One of them has a long-term relationship. The other does not. And so just by the premise, you would think that automatically they're trying to kind of diverge in different directions. Whereas, like, Terry, or Toad as he's known in the movie, um, is the opposite of John. He's the nerd um, who happens to be friends with, like, the cool guy who is kind of almost like a Fonzie character, um, pre-Fonzie. Um, and you know, the cool guy who can pick up any girl he wants and drives the fast car and is like the, um, racing legend, um, ends up getting somehow stuck with an underage girl that he has to hang out with all evening. So as not to get in extra trouble, whereas like the nerd is finally presented with the girl of his dreams in a car. That's not his.
1: Well, you have to understand that, um, uh, Carrie Marshall uh, developed the show Happy Days in large part based upon uh, American Graffiti. That's how Ron Howard ended up in Happy Days. was is based on the fact of this character in Happy Days. In fact, when Happy Days had a, a situation where they had to have two girlfriends who were going to help out Richie and Fonzie, they got Cindy Williams, who was Ron Howard's girlfriend in this film, and Penny Marshall, who was Gary Marshall's sister, to play the part. That spun off and became Laverne
0: and Shirley. So, um, all right, best performance. Best performance.
1: I like Dreyfus the best, I
0: think. He had the most memorable moment, the most soul-searching. So I actually went a little bit different. Um, I had actually George Lucas. Uh, I think this is an extremely well-made movie uh, for the time that it is, um, for being a period piece and how they reset it and how he captured a lot of um, youth and adolescence and angst and um, the kind of crisis of conscience uh, aspect because I don't know you know maybe my my uh, film historian background is a little bit limited in this regard I don't think there were a ton of movies to this point that were really like this and this was pretty much his brainchild you know this was his creation the one that really got him out of the box um, he had at least one film before this but it kind of flopped and this was kind of his coming out party um, and I'll kind of circle back around to that later kind of when we get into some of the categories at the end but um you know this is really the movie similarly to how uh, all of the friends kind of diverge in different paths and are launched by the events of this night um he similarly kind of has a uh, is set by the course of this movie
1: yeah okay i can understand your point i
0: guess I, and I honestly think, I mean, um, from some of his decisions and how he shot things to kind of how it, it went, I just, I, you know, as much as I like some of the portrayals in this, I didn't think any one person stood out. And I just, overall, the film, to me, stands out more than any one particular performance from it. Okay. I can agree, I guess, to that extent. All right. So who did you have as your best minor performance? Charles Martin Smith. Okay. Uh, And I mean, I can buy that.
1: I mean, the guy's supposed to be playing a complete nerd, complete dweeb. He could have overplayed it. It could have been almost a satire of people in that situation. And he played it very straight, very believable, and uh, didn't go over the top. It would have been real easy for him to go over the top, and he didn't.
0: See, I can buy that. I do think parts of his portrayal have been like made cliche by f- f- further portrayals after the fact. Um, but, you know, at least for what it was at the time, I, I can buy that. Um, frankly, for me, I had actually Richard Dreyfus, um, And it's just because I don't see that any one of the characters was like a major performance because they really did split the story in four. Um, but I thought his, he kind of, grew the most and kind of um, had a bigger turn for his character than any of uh, the particular um, boys within this movie. So, you know, the the scene where he's in the, the radio station and, you know, you kind of are given that uh, peek behind the curtain as to who Wolfman Jack is, and um, then all of his obvious escapades with the pharaohs, um to pulling pranks but like the part of this is seen and uh this was actually my nominee for best scene which we're going to get to in a couple of these but just kind of the way in which he plays it straight um he walks into the situation and kind of like um uh, for lack of a better term grows a pair like in the arcade scene where he's seen as the good boy and yet uh, he's the one that comes through to like kind of like save everybody else due to his reputation, that he's the upstanding, wholesome one where the rest of them are, um, you know, scalawags or whatever you will. I know that's a really dated term, but I couldn't think of anything else at the moment. So but, you know, where he's really presenting himself and how people see him and how little he's sometimes uh, figured it out up to that point that um between that and then his constant search for the woman in the T-Bird only to kind of, I don't know if he's disappointed by the end of the night. He gets that phone call and he never really meets who she is or <clears throat> figures it out. But like that, there's, there's life to be lived out there and that he kind of breaks his shell. Uh, again, and something that's going to, I'm going to circle back to <laughs> kind of go along, but I, I just think he had the biggest, um, arc of any of the characters yeah okay i can i can buy into that too anything to add on it
1: no i one thing i do want to remember or point out people of this generation don't understand um one of the characters in this film that i really wanted to point out is wolfman jack himself and that is the fact that Back in the days when we were, when I was young, um, disc jockeys were, there were, there were some disc jockeys that had international or at least national reputations. And Wolfman Jack was one of the early pioneers of radio where he his show was syndicated, um, you had Larry Jack at WLS in Chicago. You had uh, Steve Dahl, who was at WLS for part of the time, a cup. Um, I can't remember what the other station was. Um, you had different DJs that really had an impact. And they really controlled, they had a lot of influence in American culture. What they would say and do really influenced teenagers and really what music was being played. And um, the fact that Wolfman Jack plays such a predominant role in this film is really clear. Because I think at the time that this film was portrayed, Wolfman Jack was actually uh, in a station down like in Tijuana, um, illegally broadcasting into (laughs) Southern California, because because the radio stations in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, were owned by corporations and, and conservatives who didn't want to play rock and roll. And so the fact that uh, Wolfman Jack was down in a, Me- or a Mexican radio station in like Tijuana broadcasting um, just kind of furthered the whole concept of um, being a revolutionary to being – you know, outside of the norm. And I guess that aspect of the film is something that's glossed over to some extent by people. But I I think that if you think back at that time frame, I think that the the fact that Wolfman Jack is in it and plays such a pivotal role is, uh, says something. I think George Lucas understood what impact Wolfman Jack actually had.
0: Well, and- like, a lot of this movie, um, in if you look at some of the notes and how it came about, has to do with um, uh, Lucas um, kind of reminiscing about how he grew up in a small uh, Southern California city. And, you know, this is a lot based on his um, memories and time from his life. Yeah. So, I mean, that make that would make sense that he's drawing a lot from that. Uh, particular aspect Uh, i'm going to circle back a little bit to wolfman jack at some point here um, because that actually has to do with my um, uh, funniest line um, nominee but uh, i just you know there there's there are a couple of things in the aspect to how this movie is presented and frankly i think wolfman jack does play a significant role because Um, I did take notice that for about the last two thirds of the film, he's the transition almost between each one of the four stories. Every time they jump around, they have like some in between thing where he can be kind of heard over the radio. So I do think he is a major character and that's why he's kind of even mentioned in the plot summary.
1: Yeah. And I think it even goes further than that. It's not just subtlety. I mean, I think that with regard to Richard Dreyfuss's uh, character, his defining moment is being with Wolfman Jack.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they explicitly say it, but they do pretty much give you about as much of a clear indication that he's talking to the Wolfman. The Wolfman Jack as the disc jockey uh, in the later part of the movie.
1: Well, they do because as he's walking out, he catches Wolfman live talking into the mic yeah. after he leaves.
0: And he's well, like, and that's what I thought. Geez. I, I, yeah. You know, and I wasn't sure for sure if that was where they were going with it. But, you know, at least it wasn't just me that seen that. So, all right. uh, Most charismatic. Oh, boy. Uh, For me, this one was easy because he's been charismatic his entire career. And he owes his entire career to George Lucas. It's Harrison Ford. (laughs) With the cowboy hat? Yes, but Harrison Ford... Like, I don't care that smile and that just look and how um, grossly handsome he just is. He just pops off in and he plays a major role because I don't know whether it's the factor of uh, that. It's Harrison Ford's charisma or you're just noticing the fact that it's fucking Harrison Ford in this movie. And he looks so ridiculously young. But like you, you do take notice every time he's in the film.
1: I had forgotten. Actually, it's been so long oh. since I had seen the film. I bet you I had seen the film since the early, well, since the mid '90s when I think I showed it to you or tried to show it to you. Maybe early, uh, early two yeah. thousands.
0: I think it was. forgot Harrison
1: to that, but... Ford's were or was even in it.
0: Yeah, and I mean he doesn't play a major role. I thought about giving him best minor performance uh, because. He does aid to this, and I think he does pop off. But I figured giving him the most charismatic, I would at least spread the wealth a little bit. All right. So who did you have then?
1: For most charismatic? Yeah. Boy, I have really struggled with this because I'm just sitting there going, "Ah." I I guess I would go with Wolfman for that very reason that I mentioned because he just seemed to have a presence. I mean, I, I grew up with syndication that they had, you know, on, on, on Saturdays, Wolfman Jack was syndicated across the United States. And on Sundays, especially Sunday mornings, it was Casey Kasem and his uh, uh, top 10 or top 40 list. You know, And that was what was
0: going on, on when I was uh, junior high and high school. Speaking of Wolfman, you've got quite the uh, wolf women behind you. Um, It is uh, our dogs, Maggie
1: and Max. Um, Maggie apparently has a toy that Max wants. And Maggie is always able to outsmart Max because Max is a big dumb oaf. And uh, Maggie... Um, just taunts him until he finally gets so frustrated that he has no choice but to just bark.
0: (laughs) All right. So I already gave you my uh, nominee for best scene. Um, What did you have?
1: I really enjoyed the whole, the whole scene with Richard Dreyfuss and Wolfman Jack.
0: All right. Any particular reason for that? Like I said, I
1: think this – and I'm not just saying this. I think at every point in time in a, in a person's life, they have a moment in time where it's somebody they respect or they admire or think highly of who says something to them that impacts them, that just, like, makes sense, that lays it out for them, whether it's a parent whether it's a uh, a family friend, whether it's a celebrity, whatever. And to me, it's like Dreyfus finally had a moment of clarity when Wolfman Jack just basically told him he should go off to college and live his life and go that direction. And I think that was the clarifying moment. I think that definitive moment um, really was a pivotal point of live your dreams, go with your dreams. Don't be afraid.
0: Yeah. And like I said, I think that's why I nominated Dreyfus's character. uh, well, and him for best minor performances. Simply. I think that gives him some of the strongest arc. Um, Some of the other ones are kind of more subtle. Um, You know, the second bigger arc, I guess would be Ron Howard, but he does um, the thing that, um, he kind of gets some common sense beat into him as we go along. You can't exactly tell your girlfriend, uh, I want an open relationship when I go off to college, you know, that, that seems, I can
1: tell you exactly what that, that arc means, which is, is in order to achieve or sustain some level of love or relationship, you make compromises, and, well, sure, but. and that's exactly what he did. He compromised what he wanted in order to stay in the relationship.
0: Yeah, but what he wanted changed in the course of that.
1: Well, it's because he had to figure out what he wanted.
0: Well, right. And I think a lot of these guys are going through that. But that that one, you know, I, I just defined Dreyfus's um, or Kurt's um projection or arc to be the the longer one where he takes so many different turns through the whole thing you know he's at the dance then he's um, with his ex girlfriend then he's um, with the pharaohs then he's with Wolfman Jack and finally you know he's taking so many different pieces whereas like Ron Howard is with his girlfriend and then he's basically by himself at the diner or Mel's drive-in um, you know and uh, Toad's with um uh his I don't even remember her name right now, but his uh blonde bombshell and um it looks John like Milner. Connie Stevens? Huh? It looks like Connie Stevens.
1: Ah, okay. Well whatever. Anyway Connie Stevens is.
0: No, of course not. Okay. So all right. Um favorite scene. Um
1: I always love the scene with Ron Howard and Cindy Williams dancing and the school principal comes up and starts, you know, you know. Yeah. I mean, in more modern terms, where, what was his, um, go... What was it? Uh, go kiss a duck? Yeah. That would have been much stronger in more common lexicon. It would have been like, go fuck yourself, you know. And, and the. (laughs) You know, because that was that was the ultimate times, Um, you know, the moments I had because um, I actually ran for the public school board in Beloit when I was 20 and was uh, appointed when I was 21 to fill out a term. And the fact that I got to sit in a room and determine my former principal's salaries was that moment where you could just go, I'm an adult now, so fuck you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I had kind of forgotten about that one, so I'm glad you brought that one up. I did love that in the moment, Um, so I'm glad you picked that one. Uh, Me, I I loved uh, Milner cruising down, you know, Main Street or whatever it was and trying to pick up girls only to get the underage kind of um, slightly homely-looking girl uh, who's the younger sister of one of the ones he actually wanted to be with. Well do you know who that is? The no. It's
1: Mackenzie Phillips. And uh that's the daughter of uh Wills or from uh the Mamas and the Papas. Um uh what the Wilson uh, and so yeah the, the the lead guitarist and
0: the bass guitarist from the mamas and the papas, um, a sixties band that was like, um, counterculture for all of those that yeah. are, um, under the age of 45,
1: California dreaming. Anyway, but Mackenzie Phillips went on to star in a TV uh, show, uh, a Norman Lear production called, uh, good time. Uh, excuse me. Um,
0: uh, Bonnie, uh, Franklin, um, you you asking me like I would know any of these shows. They
1: just brought the show back and tried to do a reboot uh last year with a um, Pat Harrington played the the super uh Schneider.
0: Um I have no idea. But anyway,
1: anyway, guess... she was a, it was a popular sitcom in the late 70s early 80s.
0: So, all right. Um moving on to best line Uh, and this one to me, um, it's just one of the most boneheaded things that, uh, I think anybody could, uh, possibly do where you're just so fricking naive, but so Steve, I thought maybe before I leave, we could agree that, that seeing other people while I'm away can't possibly hurt, you know, you mean dating other people, I think it would strengthen our relationship. Then we'd know for sure that we're really in love. Not that there's any doubt. I mean, it's just so absurd. I'll be home at Christmas. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, it's the stupid lies teenagers tell themselves.
1: Yeah. Whereas it would have been just better if he did what most every other teenager did at the time, which is just start dating other people and say you don't have a girlfriend.
0: Yeah. Well, and so... I do want to mention in part of this, um, you know, you've been on me for a long time. You have a much different appreciation for um, No Country for Old Men, and you seemingly keep telling me that I would have a different appreciation once I become an older man for what that movie is. Similarly, I couldn't have possibly been able to watch this film uh, the first time when I did. Um, You know, whether I was uh, 15 or 11... And really had an understanding until you kind of go through these moments yourself, these uh, crises of consciousness that kind of come with youth and um, trying to figure all this stuff out. So I did look at the film in a lot different way, and it kind of spoke to me in a much different way than uh, it would have, you know, the first time I saw it.
1: And actually, one of the the pivotal moments of the film, you're going to find funny. It's actually the end where they flash the characters out and what happened to them. Like five and 10 years afterwards, because that is the epitome. It's like, I remember going to my five-year reunion. I remember going to my 10-year reunion. I remember going to my uh, 15-year reunion and just realizing the change and how things have been and where things have gotten as far as, members of the class and who's who and what they've done and on and on and on it it's very interesting and it's very you remember situations and circumstances i could tell a ton of stories i'm not even sure i've told you all of the stories that took place in my junior and senior year of high school and the freshman year of college when i'd come back and spend time with my friends who are now seniors and juniors in that class, um, and some of the stuff we did or should not actually admit publicly that we did.
0: <laughs> I, I fully understand what you mean by that, because uh, I you certainly don't know all of mine either. But well, you
1: know, and I look back and I realize now that some of these uh, individuals are. Uh, One's a superintendent of schools in California. One is a noted uh, professor. Uh, One was a uh, candidate for high office. Um, I mean, I could name, you know, lots of different situations of where they are.
0: Well, to uh, be fair, some um, of this is um, I had one of them end up in um, jail for Oh, what was it? Adultery. I had one of them end up as an infectious disease doctor in another country. Uh, I have two of them that work at the mill, but got um, one has a business degree. The other has an economics degree, but neither of them are using it. Um, you know, some of these people. But <laughs> honestly, that last part, because I didn't remember that at all, but that last part seemed confusing where I didn't know that this was just them doing kind of like an epilogue add-on at the end of the film. I thought this was like, oh, this is, uh, Sarah even asked me, is this a real story? Uh, Because, you know, like, the whole concept of that, where you add that on at the end, seems to be every biopic's go-to move. You know, how did people end up, type of thing. And, I mean, that's the trope, but, um, you know, that's just kind of where it is. So uh, what did you have as your best line? Oh, come on you knew these Just, were coming
1: i know and i had a i i really thought through and i went through and i thought through all my notes and everything and i really can't pick a line that i go oh yeah that's something i
0: would remember over and over um well no i don't think it's like that but i think there are things you can pick out that have some meaning to the overall film or at least is a moment in part of this where, um, you know, I, I, think there are things that stick out.
1: Well, again, I go back to the exact same thing, which is something that I found prevalent, which was Wolfman Jack being honest with Richard Dreyfus in the studio as to what he should or shouldn't be doing. And so, so those lines, even though they're not like I can recite them off the top of my head right at the moment. And I don't have my notes handy. But um, I think those were the most
0: poignant to me. So uh, I do want to just then touch on my honorable mention, and maybe we'll just skip your nominees for some of the lines then. But um, So my honorable mention, again, we kind of get into the summation lines, but kind of where we're kicking off the premise of this film and where some of the things diverge. So um, Steve, uh, Ron Howard's character talking to Richard Dreyfuss' character, Kurt. We're finally getting out of this turkey town, and now you want to crawl back into your cell, right? You want to end up like John? You just can't stay 17 forever.
1: There are a lot of people that stay
0: 17 forever. Eh, they may be in personality. I mean, you never physically stay 17 no, I'm talking mentally. I can name,
1: I, I, back in my high school reunion, I can name a whole group of guys and their wives, um, who all live back as if they were 17 and were in the uh popular kids group in the high school, and that's the way they live their lives. All right, so did you have a funniest line? <sighs> No. Okay,
0: I'll take that as a no. So funniest line to me, and this was one of my circle backs from earlier, but um, Carol, the Mackenzie Phillips character, uh, I just love listening to Wolfman. My mom won't let me at home because he's a Negro. I think he's terrific. <laughs> I just love that that's just popped in the like subtle racism of the whole thing. And really,
1: I honestly do not know what Wolfman Jack's
0: race was. Okay, I don't know if he was Negro. I thought he was Hispanic. Could have been. I mean, for some people, it's um, six it's of one, half like a dozen of the then. other. But he was always
1: Wolfman, and that's all I ever real you know, With that dis- very distinctive voice, ah, 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 you know.
0: Yeah. So, uh, most indelible moment. two actually oh interesting
1: Um, yeah again i go back to the wolfman jack richard dreyfus scene but then the moment where um they're on the drag strip and uh, i'm trying to blank as to the character or the actor's name that played um but him talking to to toad and saying charles martin smith you know he had me he had me
0: and so you're talking about john milner played by paul or lamat
1: Paula character yes where he actually believed he was defeated and it's that moment of doubt where you finally reached a point in your life where you know i used to do this when i was president of this local school board is every year i would tell the kids you know you're you're the most you know for those of you that are popular enjoy while you can For those of you that have been the doormats, the ones everybody's picked on, the one that everybody's teased, the one that's been, you know, had or been treated poorly.
0: Marginalized.
1: Marginalized, whatever. There's a name that they're going to be calling you in about 15,
0: 20 years. It's called Boss. Yeah, showing your colors there a little bit there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. and um, But that's, that's the scene. is where that kid who's been so popular and so key in his entire life by being the cool kid in high school and the fact that he could lose that mantra over something that's as innocuous as your ability to run a car faster than another car and lose your identity.
0: Yeah, I... I mean, I can see where, where you're going on that, and I, I do think that kind of creeps in. I think part of the rest of his crisis of conscience is, is uh, how he relates to women and how he treats them, and you know how he deals with the fact that um, the cool guy uh, trying to not score with a woman is the antithesis of everything he's done up to that point, just as much as anything else. but
1: as, by the way, the show is one day at a time, I see.
0: All right. So what was your other moment? Well,
1: I had the man Jack
0: and then that moment. Those were the two moments. Okay. All right. So me, um, it's the squad car scene.
1: <laughs> so, okay.
0: I mean, just the fact that um, you know, they had to test that thing on freaking Mythbusters. Uh, to me, that sticks out. I mean, it's one of the more classic scenes from this that most people, if they've seen the movie will pull out at you that, you know, Oh, you pulled the back axle off of the police car. It's one of those antics where, um, if, uh, you're, uh, too old, you now think it's juvenile. And if you're young, you think it's cool. And it's just kind of that, that driving point and similar to, um, another movie that we've reviewed, but like, your, uh, issues with like Ferris Bueller. So, you know, the okay. pranks and the rest of it.
1: All right. About the time I watched American graffiti, there was another film that was much later, more in the early eighties that was out okay. on HBO. It was called, um, Hollywood nights. And it was about a gang of m- misfits, whatever, uh, that were the Hollywood nights, and the star of the film was Robert Wall, who um, has done other things, and you know he's you know never been a big star. But anyway, Robert Wall was in this film, and in that film, they the police car was sitting instead of attaching the the cable to the rear axle and pulling off, they actually stuck a potato in the exhaust pipe,
0: and um, it would, that that's Beverly Hills Cop. That's a banana in the tailpipe. No, this was they did a potato
1: in the tailpipe. Okay. And I'm watching this again with my dad, who's laughing with his wheezing, um, uncontrollable laugh, which is a characteristic of the Duncans. And he's telling me how he and his uh, uncles, and his uncle David was three years younger than him, his uncle Lee was a year old, or uh, two years older than him, and his uncle Foster was a year under. So they all hung out together, even though that was my dad and his three uncles, and they did that to a to a squad car in Lancaster, Wisconsin, and then tore out and tried to get the car, the cops to chase him, and they pulled or peeled out, and then the car went <laughs> and died. And he's just roaring because he remembers doing that exact thing.
0: Yeah. So um, I, I just, you know, it's one of those fun pranks that it's kind of one of the fun moments that uh, you just remember about it. So that would have been my nominee. So uh, you ready to do the scores? Sure. All right. So Legacy. Um, so I actually had this one as an eight. Um, and there is actually a multitude of reasons for this so number one uh i think you know this may not have been the first like teen or adolescent or kind of like um defining moment type of films but i do think it has uh, a certain niche that um carries through like Clearly um, they're using elements of this in other later uh, films like John Hughes or uh, some of the other like teen comedies of the 90s. Um, and also this movie was pretty well remade. So I don't remember if you uh, remember watching a film called Super Bad with me, but it's basically yeah. the same thing like that's, that's my I'm- my um, teenage comedy coming of age type of, uh, story of of my generation. And so that that part of it does build up this movie. The other part of it is, again, and I circle way back to how we kind of started. Um, George Lucas basically used the um, notoriety got for this film. He was nominated for uh, director um, and original screenplay. Uh, this picture was also nominated for Best Picture. Um, as well as supporting actress and film editing, but he used the notoriety and the money he made from this movie to pump back into things like um, Skywalker sound and um, uh, ma- or industrial light and magic, uh, you know, s- certain things that he used as technical masterpieces or studios to really push the envelope on what was possible for uh, special effect so that he held his real passion project a certain space opera he called star wars and without this movie and without the success of this movie we don't get that on the main stage so i think that bumps it up just slightly uh maybe a half a point for me as far as legacy i think the bigger legacy of this movie is what i said at the first part
1: you didn't live through the 80s and 90s the way I did. You were a child in the 90s and you didn't live through the 80s. I would actually go with a nine. Because, really? Okay. Because this started an entire genre of films. Fast My, or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, sure. A, okay. A whole legacy of films that were based on the high school premise. Um, and, I, and I think in part, It was Lucas understanding, not just that this was key because it was a remembrance of his youth. But the fact was, is that by that time, the late 70s, early 80s and into the 90s, the parents weren't going to the frickin films. It was the kids. It was the high school kids and the college kids going to the films. And so they could relate to the characters in the films. And there were a ton of these films that were done. Um, I remember watching you know a lot of them I didn't go to the theater because I didn't want to spend the money because they were schlock but you could turn around and six months later they were on hBO and you could watch them then so it
0: was common so I can come up to a nine i i I just didn't want to necessarily overdo it um I mean this isn't uh, mentioned as one of the like prototypical when you start putting together like a top 100 but So I wasn't know if I was um, influenced a bit by that, but uh, I'll come up to a nine. So impact or significance, I think you've kind of like um, shed a little bit on that. And some of these categories have often bled into each other. But what did you have for impact and significance?
1: Again, I'd go with a nine for that very reason. This really established a genre. Um, You know, this was not a film that was common, but with the coming of age film, you know, and you can turn around and and look at even um, Stand By Me, Rob Reiner's first directed film, um, with Richard Dreyfus narrating. It's the same thing. It's about kids coming or facing situations and, and growing up and how it
0: impacts them. So, all right. I, you know, I think I can comfortably sit at about an eight and a half um, overall uh, meeting on this. Uh, I think originally I had it at a, a probably a seven, but I'm gonna come up to that just because I I wasn't understanding some of the context behind this uh, compared to some of the other things. so um, but I certainly can understand that and appreciate kind of where you're coming from on that. So um, similarly, I have to assume that you're pretty close to uh, the same type of number on novelty, right? Sorry. I was distracted by someone. It's fine, but uh, where I was saying that I think you're pretty close uh, uh, to the same number on novelty.
1: Yeah, I think it was it was novel, so I would agree with your number.
0: Well, I didn't give a number.
1: I was well, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, this is part of being distracted. Um, <laughs> I would say it's probably an eight and a half.
0: All right. So I can. I can grant that one. Yeah, I'll go eight and a half. That's fine. Um, like I said, I had this down a little bit lower. And it was just my, maybe my lack of understanding as to where this placed as far as um, genre films and where it uh, it came in that particular area. But um, so classicness. Um, again, this being somewhat Almost of a period piece way. with a little bit of hindsight. Let's, there let's aren't a lot way. of things. Yeah, let's go ahead.
1: This way. I just want to make this comment. There would not be a Disney channel, but for this film.
0: Sure. Uh, And I, I think I can grant you that. Um, so, uh, classicness for me, I really didn't have any, uh, major issues with this. There is a little bit as far as, um, kind of how the guys are trying to, um, date or relate to each woman that, Um, doesn't play real well. Like there are a couple of cringy moments for me with, um, you know, each one of them and how they're kind of relating to the women and that, how body positioning. And I mean, again, I'm relating to that in a 2020 light, but still there's just, there's just a few spots where that doesn't, but overall, like, You know, this is a film done in a bit of hindsight, so it has the benefit of that. Um, And I I really don't think it had too many other major missteps for being a film that's, um, boy, this is gonna be uh, 50 years old in a few years. Um, You know, that uh, uh, I for being as old as it is and telling a story that was, you know, 11 years prior. I think uh, did pretty well.
1: It conveyed the experience as it was. And I'll make this comment. I I, I could say something right now that would make you cringe, but it's the honest to God truth of what, what it was. Okay. (laughs) There were a lot of guys in my high school that if there were seniors and were dating freshmen and Scoring with freshmen and they were called studs now, they'd, be called, they'd be called felons. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I got the fact that I even laughed at that is kind of uh, Tom, come on. And that's I know. the way it was. I
1: know, and I'm sorry, but you know, times have well, changed. There's been a nice I... of what goes on and what impact it has, and a rise in what effect this has on women.
0: Well, and, and I mean, I, I don't not, know about I'm the whole... I'm not trying s-
1: to make excuses, and I'm not trying to justify it. I'm no, just telling I, you, I get it. that's what it was.
0: And it, it does have a little bit more of a nuanced uh, opinion that he doesn't really try to score with the underage girl, but, like, I mean, there's there's still some stuff that... Eh, but um, I, I just... I mean, even from my own experience, I do remember like the, I went to a different high school my freshman year and there was notably uh, somebody who was a senior that year uh, who was dating somebody who had been a senior three years prior. And so this guy had been, or had been to like seven proms. (laughs) Yeah. And so it was just kind of one of those things where everybody, everybody knew what was going on, but like nobody really said anything and it was just kind of one of he he would show up at these things and you'd be like oh okay but
1: now i just want to point out i was in law school and your mother was a uh junior when we met or was going to be a junior in college but if we were in high school i would have been a senior i know
0: i know and like age doesn't mean as much as you go along like the whole perspective thing, it just is more graduated when uh, you don't have as many years uh, between you, and there is a significant maturity level between like freshman and senior sometimes. But um, but
1: I had I had uh, girls that I knew it were sophomores when I was a senior that I uh, was friends with that I had, and I'm when I say relationship, I don't mean dating or anything else it was just a friendship i'm on facebook with them yet you know and um you may had a good or had a uh you had fun doing things or being in activities with but you know some of the stuff we did was probably not appropriate for a sophomore
0: i see and I'm, okay. not meeting, I'm not meeting. Yeah, you're going to end up bringing mom into our conversation again here pretty soon.
1: No, I'm just saying there was there were some parties. There were some uh, cast parties. There were some things that took place that you kind of look back on and go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could probably, yeah. just, in my own experience, write a pretty decent coming of age film. That's realistic, just on my own
0: experiences. All right. Well, I mean, it's we maybe have beaten this a little to death on that one, but what did you end up having for classicness? I have an eight and a half.
1: I had a nine.
0: Yeah, I could probably give it a nine. I mean, I'll 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 grant your argument a little bit on that one. So, um, all right. So um so that's all right that moves us into rewatchability. like i enjoyed watching this and i didn't have a hard time with it i don't know if it's one that i'm gonna revisit a lot but i certainly can see myself putting on again um and having fun with with you know it's not it's not one of my favorites but it's an enjoyable rewatch i i think i had it at a seven here
1: i'd go six and this is why Because it's one that you kind of watch, and when you know what's going to happen or remember all the specifics, it's really not that enjoyable. It's when it fades in memory enough that you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I got that now. Yeah, that's when it's more enjoyable.
0: So we'll split the difference. We'll go 6.5. Audience score on this was actually only 84%, which is one of the lowest ones that – uh, I think I've seen so far. So you add that in, uh, at 8.4 points. Um, so that's actually brings a total of 49.9, uh, overall. And so that's going to slot in, um, kind of in, you know, towards the higher range of our, uh, overall leaderboard. Um, but, uh, does that surprise you by any stretch?
1: Yes and no. Um, And thinking about it as a film, I understand that it's, I think I created it higher than I would have when I first, you know, if you, when we mentioned doing this film or watching this film, I'm like, eh, okay. And then I watched it and I realized how much or how good a film it really is. Yeah.
0: But you forget that it fades as to how good the film is. Right. Um, And I, I was kind of surprised that the AFI actually had it on both of its lists and actually had a decent uh, spot. So the original list, they had it at 77. And it's one of the few ones that I've seen, but they actually moved it up 15 slots to number 62 on their most recent list. So I can
1: you see know, that because you know, I, think, I think when you start seeing the quality of films and what impact such types or uh, that genre of film has, I think it starts actually improving in its overall category. It's one of these films that I think that if everybody watched it, it would be like everybody's film within their top 50.
0: Yeah, I can ser- see that. There are a few of yeah. them that, like, uh, you know, and maybe it's a rewatch or something else, but like um, that the more times I've watched it or um, maybe I'd watched it through a different lens, you get a different appreciation for And I certainly had it for this one. And you realize kind of its level of quality. Um, You know, I I don't know if this will be in the um, really upper tier of Pantheon, but at least for right now, I could probably see this one sneaking kind of into the top 100, kind of at the back end, depending on how uh, things go. But, uh, you know, I I enjoyed this. Um, It was a fun rewatch. And, you know, there's really not much more you're looking for out of a film.
1: Well, and I think you're probably right about the top 100, and quite frankly, most people in this world, if they were told they could be within the top 100 of their profession, would be going, yeah!
0: Well, I mean, frankly, you know, um, and we were looking at this the other day, because Sarah and I were uh, watching Ben-Hur, and uh, um, uh, William Wyler um, is the most nominated director of all time with 12 nominations but he only won three uh, best directors. But you start thinking, and um, some of the guys from his class, because there's that famous documentary, or not famous, but the one, at least for you, Sarah, and I, uh, about the five uh, Hollywood directors doing their World War II stuff. And, you know, John Ford, um, Frank Capra, um, Billy Wilder, William Wilder.
1: William Wilder. uh And... uh, John Huston and yeah.
0: um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. You know, and so you and I did this exercise a while ago where, you know, you look through some of their filmography and some of the things that they've had and the fact that they have like some of the biggest um, movies on the list. Uh, if you get one film in the top 100, that's probably uh, immensely successful. If you're getting multiples, like, now we're talking the Pantheon, and I think it's comfortable to say George Lucas is probably, if this sneaks into the top 100, I think he'll have at minimum three, and he's responsible for at least a couple of others as a producer. So, I mean, he's had an enormous Hollywood career. Um, I don't know if it's as much as his best friend Steven Spielberg, but you, you still, um, like, he's got to be up there in um, as a creator. Yeah, yeah so any other last thoughts now that we've kind of graded this one out um no i
1: i i think that this film would or you're looking at it as a uh what are you
0: generation x no you're generation i honestly don't even have any idea well, the, but millennials basically treat it as anything that's not, um, 40. Okay. Well, I mean, well, you guys kind of use it as a, an umbrella term for anybody that's young right now, but. Well, I, I'm the last year of the baby boom. Sixty. Yes, I know. 63. You pointed that out, uh, many times, including I'm pretty sure on this podcast.
1: Okay. Anyway, the point being is. is this film is speaks to me to that extent, but even I'm a little old to really understand. I I commented that my dad really loved this film. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm named Dana after Dana Andrews from, who was an actor in the forties, fifties and sixties, a little bit into the seventies, um, best years of our lives. And, um, so he was a huge film guy and just, this was one of his favorite films because this was his generation. This spoke to the time that he had and he had very few. He was a very, you know, interesting or troubled individual. He had a lot or a, a horrible childhood. And one of some of the few times he had in high school that were memorable, and enjoyable, this spoke to him. So, I think to that extent, we're not able to really grasp what this movie means to the generation that is George Lucas's.
0: Well, OK, maybe in some of the same context, but I certainly don't think the theme or the premise of this movie is all that um, different from one to the next. Like, I still relate to this movie as somebody, uh, you know, I'm not quite 30 Um yeah will be in a few months but you know the the same where you're presented um these challenges and have to kind of grow up quickly where it's all right you got you can't be 17 forever that type of situation um i think that's you universal a right, to a certain extent huh
1: like you have a flat tire
0: okay whatever <laughs> but you're you're bringing in something that isn't going to make sense at all but <laughs> Yeah, Uh, we'll let everyone read into that what they will Um, let let that one go. But um, I I do think that this film is going to have a certain level of timelessness that maybe some others won't um, as we go along. And I do think lists change over time and are reflective differently to how it relates to culture. I don't think this is going to have as much of a problem. Uh, I think that's why we have the classicness character or category. Um, as some other ones.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to play real well to everybody who graduates from high school.
0: Yeah. That's going to do it for us this week. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Thanks for listening to this back episode of American Graffiti while Dana was on vacation. Stay tuned for our other bonus episode that'll be dropping this week uh, on The Greatest Show on Earth, the 1952 Best Picture winner uh, from Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, With that, uh, we'll be back again next week discussing the 1993 Tom Hanks film Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, We'll see you again next week.